Good evening, everyone. It's a great privilege to be able to be with you tonight and uh, to be able to bring the, the word tonight. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Um, so most of you know me, I think, especially the young people. Um, those of you who don't know me, just wait till volleyball comes around and come out and watch. You'll figure out who I am very quickly. <laughs> I have earned a reputation there. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, I uh, have some thoughts tonight that have been on my mind for probably about two or three months now, kind of been mulling over them and working on them. Um, I'll be honest, uh, I felt a lot more inspired for this sermon uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was asked, and uh, you know, then you get down to the day of, you know, the day before, and you're trying to get your thoughts more organized, and I just was not feeling it anymore, and I was getting pretty stressed. <laughs> so, I've, I've preached before, so this isn't entirely new, um, but the, uh, it, normally I feel a little bit more ready to go. Um, but, you know, I was, I was actually getting really stressed out, so I'll give a little testimony here, I guess. I was really stressed out today, actually, uh, getting ready for this. And I was, uh, you know, I'm not nervous at all being with fellow believers. I don't feel nervous at all being with you and speaking to you. What makes me nervous is standing up here behind this book and the responsibility of, of uh, bringing the word accurately. Um, it's something that is, I take very seriously. So I was pretty nervous. I was pretty stressed. And uh, so uh, anyway, I, I had written a prayer a couple of weeks ago in my journal. And um, I'm actually going to pray that tonight when I start. I don't normally read prayers when I, when I preach, but I'm going to do that tonight. Every time I was feeling stressed and anxious today and I couldn't, I just, you know, I was thinking, I just don't feel this, that strong impression that I normally do, that strong inspiration that I normally do. Every time I read this prayer, I was reminded my job is just to let God's word do God's work. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, I'm going to let God do his work through his word. And uh, so uh, I'm going to read one passage of scripture briefly to uh, kind of get our minds in the right place before we pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. If you all want to read, um, absolutely follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I confess that I'm only a vessel and you alone can speak the words of life. We know that the scriptures which we hold today were breathed out by God, just as Moses received them, just as Moses received them on tables of stone, written with your own finger. Who am I that I should handle such things before your people? So I ask that you would help me to say no more than the scriptures allow and no less than they demand. May I be dead to my own opinions, speculation, or preference, but alive to the truth. Bless now the preaching of your word by the power of the Holy Spirit, that each heart might receive what it needs, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> 
Again, I'm greatly privileged to be with you all tonight. Um, we uh, want to look together tonight into the subject, uh, We Shall All Be Changed. And most of you, I'm sure, know where I'm going with this. Um, we're going to be speaking on the resurrection at the end of the age today. And many of you are probably thinking this is a very odd sermon to be hearing a couple of days before Christmas. We are talking about the wrong end of the, of the spectrum. We should be talking about Christ's birth, and here we are talking about the end of the age when uh, we're resurrected to go to heaven with Christ. And uh, So it may seem, seem odd, but these were the, the scriptures that I've been uh, felt impressed with over the last few months. So again, we're going to let God's word do God's work. And we trust it'll be a blessing to uh, someone here tonight. So now uh, let's, uh, I'll have you start turning over to Romans chapter 8. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to briefly reread this passage we just read. It says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And then in Romans chapter 8, we're going to start, uh, for now, we're going to start in verse 18. Verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know not that the creation for we know that the creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans um, here, and the, the thought that really struck me out of this passage is this here is the Apostle Paul, probably one of the greatest. Christian missionaries in all of history, um, a man who endured unbelievable things for the sake of the gospel, things I couldn't even compare to even in the slightest bit. Um, this was a man who preached to the Jews, he preached to the Gentiles, um, he traveled more than just about any other disciple did that we know of uh, to do uh, missions work, and at least church tradition records that he did preach before uh, Caesar, uh, before he was executed um, at, the, uh, at the end of his life. It's, uh, it's important to, to notice here that here we have this hero of the Christian faith, someone with so much experience, someone who wrote most of the New Testament, if you're counting the number of books written. And he says in uh, verse 23, or let's, let's go to verse 22 here, he says, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. And so here's Paul. You know, you could say Paul had it all spiritually. He was uh, you know, a hero of the faith. He didn't just know the scriptures, he wrote the scriptures. Um, I think if any one of us could claim to have been sanctified, I think Paul could have. 
Um, he had every, you might say he had everything. He had been persecuted. He was going to die a martyr's death. If anybody could have a handle on the Christian life, you would say that Paul probably could have. And here's Paul saying that there's something else he's waiting for. He's, he's saying, I haven't arrived yet. There's something left that I haven't attained yet. There's something left that I'm waiting for. And I think we should uh, go a little further even with that and recognize that not only is there a hope, we all have the hope of heaven. All of us believe that heaven is a real place. We all believe that we're going to go there. But I think it's important also to encourage the saints to remember that not only is heaven just a place that we hope for, a, a state of being that we hope to uh, enter into, but the resurrection of the dead also brings with it a promise of the If you back up a little bit, we're in Romans 8 now, if you back up a little bit to Romans 7, um, uh, we'll start in verse 7. It says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I, will, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to, to be unto death, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and slew by, and by it slew me. Uh, let me go down a little bit further. He says in verse 16, um, or verse 15, he says, For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, that's key, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And he goes on a little bit further, and uh, in verse uh, two or 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members." O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then when with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And he goes on a little further in, verse, or in chapter 8 then. We'll go down to um, verse 5. He says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So what we've seen in this passage, uh, which precedes the passage about the resurrection, is Paul is laying the groundwork for the war between the flesh and the spirit. And all of us have dealt with this. We all know very well what this is. And the reason this, there is a war between the flesh and the spirit is because though the inner man has been changed and even has been sanctified, the inner man is after Christ, has been born again, all things have been made new. This old boy here hasn't been changed yet. This old boy out here, my house that I live in, it hasn't been changed. 
the word flesh there is literal. A lot of times we look at the word flesh and we, we've kind of almost analogized it and we've almost kind of turned it into a, um, almost like, a, like an evil spirit or something that you know, we almost have to push it away. Like, oh, there's the flesh, get rid of it. You know? But the flesh is quite literally the flesh. It's our body. Your body does not like to follow God. Your body likes to sin. The reason for that is because our bodies are corrupted. You can see that, if you, you know, and we won't turn there, but if you go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3, you see the, the beginning of this condition that has come upon us. When man sinned, uh, you see changes in the body. God told Eve she would have terrible pain in childbirth. Uh, even the ground changed. Thorns grew. He told Adam, now when you work, because they always work, but he says, now when you work, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that the earth yields its fruit unto you. So we can see there was physiological changes. Even our bodies changed when we fell into sin in the garden. So the body and the spirit, the whole, because we are, a, uh, we are body, mind, and spirit. We're a whole being that is made up of different parts. And when we fell into sin, all of those parts fell. All of them were sold under sin. But when we're saved and when we're sanctified, this is something that happens internally. This is something that happens in your spirit. And so what happens is we've been set up for a war. That's what's happened. We've been set up for a war where God has changed us on the inside. He's continuing to change us on the inside through the process of sanctification. And the inner man is getting more and more like Christ. The outer man is still the outer man. And the outer man doesn't like what's happening on the inside. And that's why we're in a war. And that's why you're tempted. If your outer man was changed, you wouldn't have any temptation, any temptation anymore. Couldn't happen. You would be complete. Your body in its, in its wholeness and in its, in its fullness would be complete, completed in Christ, and you could not be tempted. So this is important for us to understand so that when we are tempted, we are not also tempted to fear that something has gone wrong with us. The Bible tells us that temptation is not a sin, that it is the uh, giving into temptation. When you, know, when you are tempted... Uh, he says, you know, resist the devil and flee. He doesn't say you're, you've already sinned. He's like, he says, you know, this is a temptation to sin. Um, and the reason for that is because the outer man is trying to get a hold of the inner man and say, no, we, we're going to go my way now. That's what's happening. Right. If you go into James, I, I didn't get the verse, I'm sorry, but um, and I believe it's in James or, yeah, I think it's in James, where he tells us uh, that, uh, or maybe it's First John, I'm sorry, <laughs> But the, the scriptures say that we uh, are tempted when we are drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. And, you know, oftentimes growing up, I remember when I was under temptation, I was thinking, oh, the devil's, you know, he's after me, he's going to get me. And, you know, I got I to resist him and I got to resist, you know. And he is, but sometimes the devil doesn't really need any help. Or sometimes our body doesn't really need any help from the devil. We're drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. But where do those lusts come from? See, that scripture wouldn't make any sense if you believed that sanctification made you 100% whole in every way and there was no more that you needed. If that's what you believe, temptation is going to be kind of awkward because that temptation is coming from you. It's of your own lusts. Well, where are those lusts coming from? If you're completely sanctified and 100% God's remade every, you're completely in Christ, where in the world is the temptation coming from? Where's this internal lust that's pulling on you? And that's coming from the flesh. So that helps us to understand temptation better. That helps us to understand uh, the, the war that we are in. And it is important that we understand this war because the inner man must win over the outer man. And I will be the first to say, I'm not always perfect at that. I'll be the first to admit that. 
Um, sometimes I say things I shouldn't. And the Lord's helping me day by day to get uh, more and more in control of myself and more and more sanctified and, and conformed to the image of Christ. Um, so, you know, in no way should a, a Christian see a struggle in their life and immediately uh, try to go back to square one and try to get saved again over and over and over again. Sometimes we see young people, you know, going to the altar and getting saved again over and over and over again. And I don't believe that's how that works. Um, I believe you can backslide, but I, I believe that's a significant situation that happens. It's not, not um, part of the growing in grace process, let's put it that way. And we'll leave that. Sanctification is another issue. I'm not going to go too far there tonight. But, um, but we know that we're in a war, and we recognize that this war is going on. Our body wants to do this. Our flesh wants to do this. And our inner man, the spirit, is going, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. And so there's this, there's this constant conflict going on. You know, I, I heard uh, once uh, somebody, uh, actually I've heard several people say this um, in preaching over the years, and I I'm not in any way going to throw down on you know, uh, anyone who has said this. Um, I would have probably said this at one time myself, but the more I've studied into this passage, the more I've questioned the idea of saying, you know, oh, I, I just love this life so much, I love living for God so much, it's so wonderful that even if God, even if there was no heaven and no hell, I, I'd still live this way. And I'm like, well, that sounds nice, but is it true? Because if there was no heaven and no hell, I mean, what was, I mean, you know, first of all, that's a question that is hard to even justify asking because the Bible says there is, so we couldn't even question it anyway. But, but I, I remember, you know, struggling with that because there was times in my life as a Christian when I, frankly, that was a, a really helpful thing for me knowing that there was a heaven and a hell. Sometimes that was very motivating for me. <laughs> and I, you know, I felt like maybe I wasn't very spiritual because sometimes I needed that, you know, well, <laughs> that's the alternative, so we're not going there, you know. And the fact that I needed that sometimes was discouraging because I felt like it wasn't spiritual. It'd be so much more spiritual if I just loved living this way all the time. Oh, I just love living this way all the time. I, you know, I love denying myself. It's so fun, you know. And so, to answer that, we'll go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again, um, and we'll just go a little further down in the passage. And I think the reason this is important to understand is, is not in any way to, to, to uh, make anyone discouraged or feel that the Christian life is hard or that it, it shouldn't be fun, because it should be. We sang, I appreciate the song selection tonight, brother, glorious, victorious songs. That was perfect, because this is a song, or this is a message of victory. But it's uh, just about pointing out where that victory is coming from. Um, so let's go to, um, let's see, 1 Corinthians 15, and I will start in uh, verse 12. Starting in verse 12. And again, Isaiah, oops, sorry, I'm in Romans 15. <laughs> Pardon me. Okay, now we're here. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ be preached that if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? I'll stop here. This was a doctrine that was going around in the early church at the time. There was an idea that oh, well, the resurrection's already happened, and so basically, it's all basically anyone who's dead, like, or who's died after this resurrection happened, they're basically you know, there's no hope for them. Um, it was only to say, you know, the only those who were alive and died before this resurrection were good. 
And this, I will say, this heresy is starting to go around again. I've actually known people who have told me the resurrection happened in 70 AD. It's all over. We're supposed to live forever now. We're not supposed to die. And I was like, well, we'll see how that works out for you in about 50 years. But um, so this, this heresy was already going around, and Paul is making an argument. And he, he says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And I have a whole list of if-nots here. And we're going to go through, he just, it's perfect. I, I barely even had to make the list because he's already got the list here. But he's got all these if-nots. If Christ be not risen, then this. Here we go. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised up not, if, there be, if the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, there, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. And ye are yet in your sins. Well, that's an interesting one. A lot of times we think that, oh, you know, we, we're always trying to pin down where the salvation was accomplished. Oh, it was when Christ shed his blood. Oh, no, it was when he died. Oh, no, it was, you know, and, and some people uh, believe that he spent the three days in the grave, that he was actually in the torment of hell. Other people believe, do not believe that. I'm not one who believes that personally. Um, and there's my reasons, but that's another sermon. But one way or another, everyone, we're always trying to pin down the, like, oh, that was the saving thing. Oh, it's, it's the blood that saves, not his death, it's the blood, the, you know, and we're always trying to sort this stuff out. But the thing is, ultimately, it was all necessary, it, and it wasn't done until it was all done. And he says here, for if the, uh, see, 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 if, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. In other words, salvation isn't even accomplished if Christ isn't raised from the dead. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And this is what we just talked about. He's saying if, if the dead rise not, or if they've already raised, then those who, who have died, you might say currently who have died, they're hopeless. There's no resurrection for them. And he goes on, if in this life only, and this is the one that got me, this actually helped me a lot. If In verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now how's that for an encouraging sermon? <laughs> and how's that for those who want to talk about how they just love living this way? They love denying themselves so much that they would do it even if there was no heaven of promise, if there was no hell to avoid. And right here, the Apostle Paul, probably one of the most sanctified men we could point to other than Christ himself, says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now in Christ... Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, this would be Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. This would be Christ, who is called the last Adam in the book of Romans. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But, in, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put his, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And this is where a lot of times you'll get with the people that believe that the resurrection has already happened and that uh, believe that basically we're all supposed to live forever now. They will a lot of times say, well, Jesus defeated death on the cross. You know, that's their argument. And I'm just like, 
says here, the last enemy which shall be defeated is death. And it tells us he's not, he's been defeated. You might say he's been defeated on account. It's been placed on the account that he's defeated, but Christ hasn't put death under his feet yet. Go to Revelation and you'll see that there's a talk of death and hell being cast into the lake of fire. Think about that. And that usage of the word hell is Hades, uh, and not Gehenna. Gehenna is the lake of fire. Hades is, uh, the, I guess you'd say, the grave. Um, so Revelation talks about death and the grave being cast into the lake of fire. Well, that's an interesting one to think about. You ever wondered why people have depicted uh, death in the form of a person over the years in the form of the Grim Reaper? I believe this is where that comes from because there's this idea of death itself being punished in hell for all of eternity, almost as if death has some kind of personhood. Now, we're not going to go into whether it does or not. That's another subject by itself. But the point is that even, that at it, it, the last day when it's all over, Christ is going to cast even death itself into the, into the lake of fire. So death has been defeated on account, but Christ has not put it under his feet yet. He's waiting. He's biding his time. He's, and he's doing this so that more people will come to know Christ before the end. Um, let's go, okay, the last enemy of the Lord is that, okay, verse 27, for he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also sub be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Good question for Paul to ask. Why am I getting beaten all the time? Why am I getting flogged? Why am I getting stoned? Why am I going and living in uh, jails uh, for a good portion of his latter life? Uh, you know, why am I uh, letting myself be turned against by all my, my Jewish brothers? You know, why am I going through all this? If the dead rise not, what's the point? You know, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no heaven... I mean, you know, <laughs> there's no point. And, and this is Paul saying this. This isn't me. He says, uh, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what, is it, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? He's, he's arguing with these people, and he's fighting with these people, and he's like, what, what, what's the point if the dead aren't going to rise? If I'm not going to rise again someday, and their souls aren't going to rise, that's more important. The people I'm preaching to, if y'all's souls aren't going to be going raised up someday, what am I doing here? You know, I should be home watching a movie. Why would I be here if I didn't think all of you were going to end up somewhere someday? I've got to figure out where I'm at again. <laughs> yeah, he, okay, so here he says, What advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that's what it would be. If there was no resurrection, it would be, Let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. And I've got to be honest, sometimes I feel like that. I don't always feel great. Sometimes I feel like, you know what? I'm just going to go get myself a double cheeseburger and a Coke, and then fooey on everything else. <laughs> I know how that feels sometimes. And the thing that keeps us from that condition is knowing that this is not all there is. Amen. Thank the Lord. Thou fool. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, I jumped places again. Um, 
he goes into describing then the resur- what kind of body will be resurrected. Verse 35 through uh, 50 kind of touches on this. We won't get too much into that because I'm running a little short on time here. But um, just to, uh, to kind of go over it, you know, he mentions, um, and, and please do read this for yourself um, tonight or later, um, he says, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? You know, and he's, he goes through and he says, there's celestial bodies, there's physical bodies, there's all these different kinds of things. He says, and you know, he's, he's trying to explain to them, the body we're going to receive when we are raised again isn't the same, it's not exactly the same as this body. Um, so we are expecting a change. We are expecting a change. You know, uh, let's take the, um, that uh, man, Nick, of, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, starts with a V, he's missing all his arms and legs, and I believe he was born that way. Now, the average Christian, if you ask them, why is that, well, you know, how is God's mercy, how is God's love visible? They're like, well, you see, it's like this. See, it's, it's not actually bad that he's crippled. Because he's used that as a platform for Christ, and he preaches and he writes books, so it's actually a good thing. No, that is, it's not a good thing. It is still a bad thing. Romans 8.28 says God works all things together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. He works all things together for good. Before the fall, he looked at his creation and said it is all very good. Before the fall, nobody would have been born without arms and legs. It wouldn't have happened. Okay, so we have to recognize when we suffer in the body, these sufferings are not good things. These sufferings are bad things, but God will use, he will redeem those bad things for the good. But the ultimate hope is not in, wow, I write books and I preach and I get people saved because I'm missing my arms and legs. That's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is that you're getting a new body and you'll have all your arms and legs again. So for those who are crippled, those who are elderly... You know, those who are uh, suffering from cancer, from diseases, your ultimate hope is that you are going to receive a new body that is incorruptible and does not have the curse of sin on it anymore and does not have the curse of death on it anymore. But until that time comes, there is opportunity for redemption of that. Absolutely. And then he, uh, he goes on in verse 51, we, that's where we started. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's key. That's what we alluded to earlier. Those of us who haven't died when Christ comes back are still going to be part of the resurrection. And that's key because it's not just about bringing the body back to life. That's not the whole point. It's about changing the body into something better than it ever was before even if you're not dead. So if, if Christ were to come back right now, I would have a new body. My gallbladder would be better. I've got some gallbladder problems. I, so far, I think, have kept mine longer than anyone else in my immediate family has. So, uh, you know, congratulations to me for that. But, um, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. But, um, you know, I won't have to take medicine to keep my gallbladder from nearly killing me every time I eat something greasy when that comes. There's so many benefits, and that's just a piddly little thing, I mean, compared to people missing arms and legs. But there's so many things that we can look forward to that, uh, you know, no more cavities, no, no more of any of this kind of stuff. But even more than that, even more than that, and this is where we're going to head right before we wrap up, won't be too much longer here. Um, we're all going to be changed 
in the blink of an eye. When Jesus steps, there's a song that I, I love to listen to, and I would have sang it, but um, I didn't have time to get ready for that. But um, G, there's a song that says, when Jesus steps out on the cloud to call his children, um, the dead in Christ shall rise and meet him in the air. You know it. Yes, sir. And it says, and those of us that remain shall be, maybe you might have to help me with this, brother. And those, that, those of us that remain, and remain shall be quickly changed. That, you got it. And then those that remain shall be quickly changed. And that song just encourages me so much because it, it's this change. This is what we're talking about. We shall be changed. That's the title of the sermon tonight. We shall be changed. And it's not just bodily. It's not, that's a great thing. This is one of the, the how we're made whole. But the greatest thing about it is the flesh will be gone. This, this boogeyman flesh that we talk about all the time. That, Like I said earlier, sometimes we almost think of it as something outside of us that's like attacking us. And then we remember, no, 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 it's my own lusts that entice me. It's this thing that I'm warring against. And the inner man and the outer man will be reunited. And I tell people, I, I, I can't say I have like a perfect theological model or that I understand absolutely perfectly. But what I tell people is they say there's three steps to the completion of the redemptive work. First, you're justified. That's the erasing of the, of the past sins. Then you're sanctified. That's the, the uh, process by which the inner man is brought into conformity with the image of Christ. You become like Christ in the inner man. And then there's the glorification. The glorification of the body is when our body is going to catch up to the changes that have been happening in our inner man. And when that happens, not only will you have all your arms and legs back and your gallbladders won't hurt you anymore, but now you're going to be in a situation where you cannot be tempted ever again. Praise the Lord. I am very excited for that day because I do not like being tempted. It stinks. So I am very excited. Paul said earlier, we read, he said, if, there, if, if our hope in Christ be in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. Well, why is that? Because the way that we live in Christ in the Spirit is we have to put this guy to death. The, the man on the outside has to die. Paul says, I die daily. He says, I'm in all these travails. He's like, what profits it, what profits it me if, if, I'm not, if there's not an end to this somewhere? And the end is that at some point, this outer man that we're warring against is going to be changed. And this outer man will be in union with our inner man. The spirit and the body will be united. The mind will be united with them. And we will, our whole body will be in conformity to the image of Christ. There will be no possibility of temptation anymore. It won't just be, you know, uh, and, and I'll give you an analogy real quick before we go. Think about our military in this country. Would you say right now, and this is not meant to be a political question, but would you say right now that generally our nation is, at, is at, in a time of peace? Generally, yes. You know, yeah, I mean, there's conflicts around the world and whatever, but generally, like, there's nobody knocking on our door right now with a gun and saying, hey, you know... <laughs> We claim this land for whoever. You know, no one's doing that. Generally, our nation is in peace right now. Why is that, though? Because, well, first of all, because God's protecting us, but on a more practical scale, it's because our military is standing guard at our doors. We have other guys with guns and other guys with body armor and other guys in tanks and airplanes that are standing guard for us. That's why we're safe. That's why we're at peace. So, yes, Christ brings peace into our life, through justification, through sanctification, he brings peace to the inner man. 
But this peace is only achieved through, through battle. We put on the armor of God. That's a familiar refrain. This peace is only achieved through warfare. It's only achieved through battle. There's coming a day, though, when you can lay your armor down. There's coming a day when you can stop fighting. Because when real peace comes, you, uh, a, a, the final peace, you don't, it's not a peace achieved through military strength. It's a peace achieved because the enemy is gone. And that's what's coming. When we're raised from the dead, our flesh will be brought into conformity to Christ along with our inner man, and we will at that point be untemptable. We will at that point be safe. We can call the troops back. We can lay our armor down, and we can settle in for a real peace. You don't ever have to get at that point to the end of a, a trial, you know, and you reach that mountaintop and you're in the victory and say, hmm, I wonder when the next valley's coming. You won't have to do that anymore. And that's when real peace will come. It's all, it's all peace. It's all, Christ has given us peace now, but it is a peace with expectation, a peace with waiting. He says, and he uses the term, the whole creation is groaning, and do we not see this? You know, we see animals killing each other, and then they make TV shows out of it and put it on National Geographic to make us all sick. I can't stand that. I, don't, I can't stand seeing suffering, and that, that's terrible, terrible for me. But, um, you know, this isn't entertainment. This is terrible. Like this, I mean, everything is suffering because of what we did in Adam corporately in the garden. Everything dies. Everything suffers. Even the animals, even the plants and the trees, everything dies. It all suffers. The whole of creation is groaning in pain and, and longing for the, the adoption to come, longing for God to recreate everything in, a, in perfection when sin will be eradicated. And even Paul, who is filled with the Spirit, says, and I'm groaning right along with it. I'm waiting earnestly, expecting that day to come. So when I hear people say, oh, I'm just so satisfied. Oh, you know, I'm just so satisfied the way things are. And, you know, and, and I know what they mean. They're, they're trying to give glory to God, and I absolutely appreciate that. Um, and, and they're right to some extent. What Christ has given us now is enough for now. But it's not enough forever. He wouldn't have promised more. So there's more coming. Um, I've pretty much went through everything, I think. Um, but just for one more thing, let's go to Job chapter 19. Probably everyone saw this one coming. This is, this is no, no trick. Um, we're we're going to close on this scripture. Some people, I think, have a little bit of confusion about what the resurrection will be. Um, Paul, you know, in, in, Roman, or in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about this debate over what kind of a body will it be? Will, it, will we be able to do this? Will we, to, will we fly? Will we have harps and sit in the clouds? And hopefully not, I'd be bored, bored to death. Um, but, you know, the thing that, uh, that is important to recognize is that it will be a body. It's not going to be some spiritualistic body that's just kind of, you know. It, the Bible also tells us in another place that we will be like him. When, we, when Jesus comes back, we will be like him. So look at how he was before he left. He, he could walk through a wall. He was a spirit. He wasn't a body like us. But he could put fish in his mouth and eat it, and it stayed in. So he's not just a spirit either. So we know there's, some, there's a mystery. We don't know exactly what God has laid up in store for us, but we know it's going to be a body. It's going to be familiar. It's not going to be some ethereal experience that we've never, like, whoa. You know, There's going to be a certain uh, element of familiarity to it. And Job drives this home, and I'm just going to also close on this. 
So we can see someone who was going through a hard time and how the resurrection helped him. So uh, Job uh, chapter 19, uh, we're going to start in verse... Uh, let's start in verse 23. Um, so obviously, we all know the story of Job. We know how much he's suffering, what he's going through. His body's a wreck. His friends came over, and they did the smartest thing they could do and just said absolutely nothing for seven days. And then they decided to open their mouths, and they ruined everything. And they were uh, more of a problem to him than not having them was. And then his wife decided to jump ship on him, and it, it, it was all terrible for Job at this point. And he's going through, and I, I mean, I, I think someone needs to write a book on Job for people in depression, because, I mean, it is just amazing. But anyway, um, so verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Hmm, if only he knew. Um, they, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold him, and not another, even though my reins be consumed within me. And I'm thankful for what we see in this passage. This is such a blessing to me. Here's Job going through a terrible experience in his life, one that I can't even comprehend in some ways. And the thing that, he, I mean, you read it for chapters, he's in depression. And then just poof, he just, you ever have one of those moments? Just poof, all of a sudden he's got it. That was me when I read this prayer a couple of times today. I was in terrible, terrible distress. And every time I read that prayer, I was just like, no, God's word will do God's work. It's not, uh, it's not me, it's him. So I don't have to feel terribly inspired, you know, as long as I know that the Lord has given me the thoughts, I don't have to have some big feeling, I don't have to have some big rush of emotion, I can feel nothing and just say what it says, because this is the power, this is where the power is, not me. And so, you know, we have those moments where we poof, and we have that truth moment, and it, it encourages us, and that's where he's at here, he has a, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he says, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, that's kind of a disgusting description. He's, he's literally describing bodily decay. He's like, even after my body has physically decayed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. What a statement. He knew what was coming. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. In other words, oh, it's not going to be some other version of me. No, it's going to be me. Like, I'm going to see him with my own eyes. Even though my reins be consumed within me, I will end there or I will go all night. So I appreciate your attention. Um, I hope this has been encouraging to you as it has been to me over the last couple of weeks. Um, just thinking about the fact that, you know, and, and, and I'll just throw one more thing in here for, uh, for an, an additive. You know, when you're going through a hard time spiritually, this applies too. This isn't just an application physically. Um, you know, if you're struggling against sin, if you're struggling with some kind of, you know, addiction or you're struggling with, with something in your flesh, this is encouraging because, you know, you can realize this isn't the way it's going to be forever. You know, it's, this is, it's a temporary war and the war will end. And uh, that, yeah, and that's our hope. So I'll, I'll leave you there. Um, I hope it's been an encouragement. Um, I will just pray briefly here, and then I'll turn it back over to uh, 
Brother Rod, and we'll finish up the service. Lord, we're thankful for the help that you've given us tonight. Lord, we're thankful for these promises that you've laid up in store for us, Lord. We're thankful that we can know there's more coming in the end, Lord, that it's the work hasn't been 100% completed yet. You've, you've given us enough for now, but there's still more to come and there's more to hope for. And that when we have to crucify the flesh every day, Lord, and, and we know how hard that is, Lord, we can understand um, with anyone, I can understand alongside them how hard and how difficult that is and, and how much it stinks to, uh, to be in this, this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. But we can know, Lord, that that conflict will end and, um, and, and we can look forward to that, Father. And, and it gives us motivation to deal with it, Lord, because we know that this, uh, we're not just dying daily for, for this life only, but we're dying daily knowing that we will rise again to new life in the future, Lord. So we're thankful for all these things. Father, we just ask that your work would do, or your word would do your work, Lord, that you would uh, speak to each heart tonight and encourage uh, whoever needs encouraged. And um, we just thank you for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.